Welcome to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. So much going on in tennis right now. We are a week until the U.S. Open, which means on this edition of Monday Match Analysis, it's the final installment of the U.S. Open Power Rankings. Before that, I'll go over the sweeping changes that were just made to the Davis Cup earlier this week. Is this good for tennis? Is this bad for tennis? Before that, I will revisit the Federer-Djokovic final that we just witnessed in Cincinnati, Djokovic winning 6-4, 6-4. But first, I'd like to address something that I read a lot yesterday on Twitter, in YouTube comments. Roger Federer is done. For everyone who, and, and I don't think it was just haters, I thought it was Federer fans as well, saying Federer is over. And to that I say, everybody calm down. Roger Federer is fine. He is unequivocally at the moment the third best player in the world. And that is not meant to be a stinging statement about Roger Federer. Federer is 37 years old. He is the third best player in the world right now. The third best player in the world will always have a chance to win any tournament he has entered in. Federer has not won his last major in all likelihood. It is not unthinkable that Federer will be stuck at 20. It's not unthinkable. But I wouldn't bank on it. If Federer can maintain his status and not get caught by the likes of a Sasha Zverev or a resurgent Juan Martin Del Potro, Roger Federer at the moment is firmly entrenched in a role as the third best player in the world. You can come into a major and, first of all, own, not have to play either of Rafa Nadal or Novak Djokovic. It can happen. Or he might have to play one of them, and he still has a chance to beat either of them. Unless we're talking about Nadal on clay. He might have a lower chance of winning than losing. It might be more likely that if he plays Novak Djokovic at the U.S. Open, that he'll lose that match. Or Rafa Nadal for that matter. But the third best player in the world can always win a, win the major that he is playing in. Always. So for Roger Federer, I would say uh, let's let's calm down. Let's slow our roll. Federer is, is absolutely fine right now. And Federer fans might say, no, he's not fine. I know he can play better. Yes, he probably can. In 2016... Roger Federer looked done. He wasn't. He made improvements. He he changed. Give him an off season here. I don't think that 2018 will wind up being Roger Federer's year. In a year that he's won a major, by the way. But I don't think it will go down as a great year for Federer. But give him an off season to try to get better at 37 that's not an easy thing to do 
but he's done it before. Okay, now let's look at our thumbnail. That's Federer and Djokovic, beautiful, clear Cincinnati sky, uh, shaking hands at the net. Uh, Federer, after the match, uh, did, did a really good job just not dwelling on his own performance, which was, I'm sure, frustrating to him, uh, but instead focusing on the great accomplishment uh, that Novak Djokovic had achieved, which is winning his ninth Masters 1000s title, not his ninth in total, but uh, the ninth tournament, um, and now he's he owns um, a title for all nine Masters 1000s title. I did make a video after the match, five reasons why Djokovic beat Federer. Um, so I guess I want to revisit that, and I'll go in a little bit more detail, especially about item number two. Number one was Djokovic's mental, where I thought he was focused and locked in throughout the entire match. Number two was Djokovic's second serve, which should really be paired with Federer's return. And there were some comments that said, how could you not have Federer's return uh, on, on, the, uh, on the five reasons? And I'd say those comments are probably correct. It should have been on there. Uh, I, I make these videos, mind you, immediately after watching the match, so um, sometimes it's hard to reconcile exactly what happened, um, and then a lot of the times I'm not even looking at the stats b before I do this kind of thing. So Federer's return should probably be on there. Fed's forehand, just too many errors off of that wing. Djokovic's aggression, not sitting back like he had been doing all week and like he did against Tsitsipas in Toronto. Um, and then number five, Fed's double faults. They came at some bad times. Uh, but I want to focus on the second item, which is Djokovic's second serve and Roger's return uh, because I'd say that was... The biggest, the biggest factor in the match. And those are, when you look at the stats, they are jarring. So let's take a look at some of these, some of these numbers. Djokovic's average second serve speed, 98 miles per hour in the first is an excellent number by Novak. So that's where I gave Novak a lot of credit there for upping the ante on his second serve. In the second, 90 miles per hour is a little bit more pedestrian. The average rally length on Novak's seconds were two shots. And on the first serve, the average rally length was four shots. Federer missed 11 second serve returns. And he missed 10 first serve returns. At the highest level, when you are talking about the highest level, ATP tennis... When return numbers are worse on the second serve than the first serve, that is the returner's fault. That is bad returning. Almost always. Because there are no top players who hit their second serve as well as their first serve. Novak Djokovic included. So for Federer to miss more second serve returns than first serve returns, red flag. For the average rally length, to be lower on the second serve, red flag. And that all resulted in points won by Novak, 14 of 18, 78%. I also want to highlight the two biggest breaks of serve in the match. In the first set, it was three all. Deuce, Roger Federer double faulted, and then 
with uh, the advantage to Novak. He made a brilliant cross-court backhand return on the stretch. A good first serve by Federer. Normally, you get a, sh a, a short ball or a service winner when you make as good of a serve as Federer did on that point. But Novak made a good return. An inside-out forehand by Federer was excellent, but Novak... Uh, defended really well, hit a backhand down the line. Federer then went cross-court. Novak once again, defensive cross-court, and the ball skidded off the service line. And Federer, if you'll remember, pretty much whiffed on the forehand. So a tough bounce, but ultimately incredible return and defense by Djokovic to get the break in the first set. And Federer just really couldn't dig into Novak's service games at all for the reasons that we just outlined. In the second set, the two traded breaks early. Um, in fact, yeah, anyway, three all. Sorry, I just get a little jumbled up looking at my chicken scratch notes. Um, but then at deuce again, at three all, Federer double faulted. So that's two major double faults at deuce. And then, advantage Novak, a backhand approach shot by Federer. Not the best approach shot, also not terrible, but a pass that Novak is normally going to make. And he made it beautifully, curving the forehand down the line passing shot uh, into the court to get that next break. So, just kind of highlighting how the biggest points in the match went down on uh, on Rogers' serve. Two huge double faults, and that's why that was item number five on the uh, five reasons that Novak beat Federer. I was going to dig into this match a little bit, a little bit heavier, but I think that it's a little bit tired for all parties involved. Just because, just because it, it wasn't, it was a match where Federer didn't really have his best, and I do think Djokovic was close to his best. A lot of people said that it wasn't a fun match to watch. The rallies were quite short on average for Federer Djokovic. I think that that's a product of Cincinnati and the conditions, uh, because they are so fast, because the ball is rather hard to control. Um, but. One thing I will, I'll say before we move on to Davis Cup is, and I don't know if I, I don't, I don't think I can do anything to change this, but if I don't say something, I, 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 I feel that I should say something. And that is, can we cool it with the venom, the venomous nature um, of when Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal play? I've probably said this before, but Twitter should not be an ugly place when these guys play. YouTube comments should not be an ugly place when these guys play. There is, there's just a lot of venom being thrown around everywhere. Um, I don't really see the reason for it. Let's talk about Davis Cup. Big changes this week. There are a few things that you need to know. One. There will now be 18 teams in the in the Davis Cup. There are preliminary rounds that uh, will get will get countries into the Davis Cup. Then there will be four of last year's semifinalists 
who will not need to play in the preliminary round. They will be offered an automatic bid into the Davis Cup. And then there will be two wild card countries. That will bring you to 18 teams in the Davis Cup. The Davis Cup will be played in one week. It will be played at a neutral site, which means there can only be one home team. There will no longer be a home team and an away team in Davis Cup. And lastly, Davis Cup will be played best of three. What made the Davis Cup great was, in my opinion, the home and away factor. The raucous crowds, the incredible environments. I thought that that added so much to Davis Cup tennis. And I'm incredibly saddened that we have lost that. The fact that it's in one week, sure. 18 teams, cool. Best of three, fine. What kills me is that the two finalists for the Davis Cup in 2019 are Madrid and France. Lille? I, 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 don't, I don't know how to say that one. But, uh, yay? I don't know. But <laughs> the fact that USA can play Croatia and that can be happening in Madrid in the Davis Cup saddens me. Because I know that USA-Croatia would be better in USA, in the USA, and it would be better in Croatia. Madrid is no place to play USA versus Croatia in the Davis Cup. With that being said, let's take a step back and look at why the changes were made, what the objectives of the changes were, and if those objectives can be completed and reached successfully. I want to read an excerpt of... Um, an article by Ben Rothenberg, New York Times. He said, Haggerty, that is David Haggerty, the president of the International Tennis Federation. Haggerty and other tennis officials have said they believe Davis Cup needed an overhaul because tennis's biggest stars did not regularly participate and the event did not generate enough global interest and revenue. When France won the Davis Cup last November, it did so without having beaten a top 40 player in singles through the four rounds of the competition. Tennis is a star-driven sport just like all individual sports are a star are star-driven sports. Golf is driven by Connor excuse me. Golf is driven by Tiger Woods. MMA is driven by Connor McGregor. Boxing is driven by Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao. And Canelo Alvarez. That's just what the numbers will tell you. Simple as that. And tennis is quite similar. In team sports, you have an allegiance. I'm a Real Madrid fan. I'm a Chelsea fan. I'm a Bayern Munich fan. I'm a Dortmund fan. You are going to be watching that team regardless of who the heck they put on the pitch. You are loyal. 
But tennis doesn't have that. Tennis only has its stars. There are diehards, but then there are people who will tune in for Federer and Djokovic and Nadal, perhaps Murray, perhaps Del Potro. That's it. And for a while, Davis Cup just wasn't getting, or really, yeah, for a really long time now, Davis Cup hasn't been getting the stars every year on a consistent basis. And as a result, people don't care as much as we want them to. And if I ask my casual sports fan friends, my friends who will only watch tennis occasionally, and I ask them what Davis Cup is, many will not know. Many will have never heard of it. Because the Davis Cup is, unfortunately, low on the totem pole. And diehards love it. And I love it. And tennis purists love it. But it does not have mainstream appeal. And David Haggerty recognized this. So I think that the cause for concern is fair. David Haggerty saying that Davis Cup needs change. That's fair. And the stat that Ben Rothenberg threw out at the end of this expert excerpt that France didn't need to beat a top 40 singles player through four rounds of the competition is a very telling stat. So you make this event one week. You infuse it with a ton of prize money. I believe $25 million. Will the Stars play Davis Cup? And can this transform the Davis Cup into what I would like it to be, which is sort of a sixth major? If the ATP finals are the fifth major, then maybe Davis Cup can be the sixth. Sorry, Indian Wells. Sorry. But let's be real right now. Maybe Davis Cup could be the sixth. And I am all for it. If they can get the stars to play. If this change will get the stars to play. Which is why we need to hold out here. We can't judge the Davis Cup changes. It's impossible. Because it's all about getting the stars to play. I would like them to... One thing I would like them to explore, which they didn't, is make it a part of the rankings. The rankings matter a ton to... Any player, really, I mean, with the exception of maybe guys in the top four who don't get too caught up with it and may and, and will skip tournaments, even if it means that their ranking might take a hit, to everyone else, they're trying to get in main draws. They're trying to get in Masters 1000's main draws. That is very difficult to do. And God knows they want to be in the top 128 to qualify for the majors. I have one concern. The timing of the Davis Cup. It's after the ATP finals. You are trying to draw the top eight players in the world. This is the this is the goal of the changes. Why are you making it a week after the grueling ATP finals? There has to be a better time to do this. Make it 
before the Aussie, maybe. Not like a week before. Maybe two weeks before the Aussie. Kick off the season with this. There has to be a better time. There just has to be. If the players play, if the top guys play consistently, it's a success. If they don't, it's a great and epic failure. Those are my thoughts on the Davis Cup. Okay, now let's uh, go to the U.S. Open Power Rankings. I'll try to keep this within 10 minutes. Uh, we'll start by um, visiting the two, uh, or actually there have been three previous installments, but let's just take a look at the two previous installments, starting with the U.S. Open Power Rankings after the City Open in D.C., So Del Potro was as high as number three. Andy Murray, who was in the top 10, fell out of it. Then, after Toronto, Del Potro moved down two spots, which moved up, which bumped up Federer one, and it bumped up Chilich one. Anderson and Nishikori flipped, and Stefanos Tsitsipas moved into the top 10. Nick Kyrgios fell out of the top 10. And now, the final installment, I won't reveal it all at once. We'll start with who could not find their way into the top 10 and who fell out of it. Tsitsipas, a first-round loss to David Gafan. I don't blame him at all for that loss. He had to be weary. He looked weary in that match. Gafan had an, had an awesome week. However, he was just in the top 10 by, by the skin of his teeth, so the first-round loss bumped him out of it. And it was the performance of someone else moving well into the top 10 that really bumped Tsitsipas out. Grigor Dimitrov into the next four. He's finally finding some form. He had a terrible start to the year. He had a great finish to last year. Um, so as Dimitrov is starting to play better tennis, I've bumped him into the next four. David Gafan. A really good week, had to pull out with the shoulder injury against Federer in the semifinals. Um, if his shoulder is okay, he'll be a tough out in the U.S. Open. Gafan, I would say, is uh, firmly a top 10 player when he's at his best. And then Murray, he's stayed in that spot, unable to break into the top 10. As for Dominic Team, he is out of the next four. And Nick Kyrgios, out of the next four. Just... Uh, that's kind of tough for, for Kyrgios, but out of everyone who is in the next four, no one, everyone's pretty much had better results this summer than Nick Kyrgios. So although he's talented and if he, and if he focuses like he did in the first two sets against, uh, against Del Potro this week, uh, he will be a tough out. Still, um, I had to bump him out. Okay, as for 10 through 6, in the power rankings. Kane Shikori drops down one spot to number 10. John Isner is down two spots to number 9. And Stan Wawrinka is in. Kevin Anderson up one spot. And, Al and uh, Alexander Zverev is still at number 6. Zverev has uh, had a woeful two weeks here. We'll start with him. This is a strange spot. Because we're used to two things. Zverev coming into a major. We're used to him having a lot of confidence and not being well-rested. 
and that has not turned in to good major results. We're getting the opposite here. We have a wet, we're going to get a well-rested Sasha Zverev with no confidence. And to be honest, I'm not sure that that isn't better than a tired Sasha Zverev with confidence. Maybe he needed this. Maybe he needed to take some time. Zverev's a guy, I don't, I don't, I don't envision him as a guy in his career who will have confidence issues. He he has a lot of ego about him, which is a, which is a good thing. It really is. So I think he'll be fine um, once he digs his teeth into into the U.S. Open. Uh, and I'm actually just depending on the draw. I think he can go decently far. Kevin Anderson at number seven lost really badly to Gafan this week. But I think Gafan's a pretty bad matchup for him. Anderson's the kind of guy who can take advantage of a good draw. Uh, but still, I would have trouble envisioning him challenging um, the top guys. Stan Wawrinka is the biggest mover this week. And he has begun to put together some really, really nice results. He impressed me in Toronto against Rafa Nadal. And then in Cincy, he beat Diego Schwartzman in three sets. Schwartzman was in really good form. He beat Kei Nishikori, who I, I keep expecting to round into form here now that he's been healthy for a little while and he's on his favorite surface. And it hasn't quite happened. He then beat uh, Martin Fuksovic, and then he lost to Roger Federer in three sets. Looked impressive in that match um, at times. So Stan is not back because everyone likes to say this person's back. This person's back. You're not back until you're contending for major titles. Stan is not back. Stan is really good again. And then Kay, I just talked about. Okay. Are you ready? Here it goes. One through five and we have no changes. I just couldn't bring myself to change anything about this top five. We'll start with Novak. Once again. And I was ready. I was ready to bump Djokovic down. The way he was looking against. Tsitsipas in the loss. Manorino in the win. Dimitrov in a win. And Raonic in a win. I was ready to bump Djokovic down. But he reminded me. He reminded me basically. I always knew what he could do, but I guess he had me wondering. I'll put it this way. He had me wondering, did he, was Wimbledon sort of just a peak? And then he needs to kind of, it, it might take some time again to work his way back up to that. Did he just play, was he just back for an instant in that match against Rafa? And does he, does he need more time still? I didn't really think so. I was puzzled by how poorly he was playing early in the week. But obviously, he's shown now that joke, the Djokovic that we saw at the end of Wimbledon is the Djokovic that will be here to stay in majors. Djokovic at his best should beat Nadal and Federer and everyone else right now. And that's why he's number one. Could Could I see him... Do I see him as more likely to be upset early 
than Rafa in the U.S. Open. I do. I think that with Rafa's consistency throughout the year and just the way he's looked so convincing against almost everyone and so steady, I would be more surprised if Rafa loses early than Djokovic. But if the two play in a semifinal or a final, I like Novak, and that's why he's number one. Number two, Rafa, and number three, Federer. Uh, that's, I think, pretty... I don't know. I don't know if there would be even much room for disagreement there with Federer at number three. Chilich is at number four. Del Potro at number five. Let's let that simmer for a second. Del Potro. The 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 question with him is: Will he have his backhand back? And if he has a slice backhand, only a slice backhand, can he still make a run? I would say yes, he can. Just can he beat Federer? Can he beat Nadal? Can he beat Djokovic without his top spin backhand? Let me rewind for a second before I go, which I'll go very, very soon. But uh, just for full transparency, first of all, just because Djokovic is number one in the power ranking doesn't mean I'm going to pick him for the U.S. Open. The draw isn't out yet. Let's see what happens here. The draw is important. Early, early in the year before the Australian Open, I said Djokovic would win the U.S. Open. And there were comp people in the comment section said, what are you smoking? You are out of your mind. And then after, um, after the French, I said, I still think Djokovic can win the U.S. Open and he can be back in time for the U.S. Open. And people said, you are absolutely nuts. But then, at the start of the hardcourt season, after Djokovic surprised me, went way ahead of schedule, and won Wimbledon, then I'm like, you know what? With the pressure on Novak, and pressure is, by the way, something I didn't mention with Nadal. I think there's a lot of pressure on, on anyone defending their title. It's extremely difficult to defend titles. There's, it's a lot of pressure. So I would like Nadal a little bit more if he hadn't won last year, believe it or not, just because of the pressure. But I thought after Novak won Wimbledon with the mental struggles he's had, do I really like the pressure of Novak being a favorite? Maybe I like a guy like Del Potro who is under the radar, who people don't really talk about as someone who could win this tournament, but really it doesn't make any sense. He's right there is Juan Martín Del Potro. He made the semis without a topspin backhand, basically. He returned with topspin. He could hit a passing shot with topspin. But in a baseline rally, he was really just slicing it. And he made the semis. He beat Roger Federer. And then earlier this year, he went on a great run on the hard court. So that's why I really wanted to pick Del Potro. Draws and out. Yet, yeah, maybe I still will, but I probably won't. I really wanted Del Po. And then, seeing how bad Novak was, I thought, hmm, maybe this is a race between Nadal and Federer. And then, Novak showed me his best tennis. And if Novak is going to have his best tennis, he will probably win the U.S. Open. That's full disclosure. 
how my mind has flip-flopped and waffled and changed over the course of the last six months when it comes to this year's U.S. Open. Much more content coming your way throughout the week. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.